Hey everybody, welcome to the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast, dedicated to raising awareness, sharing IBD stories, and offering support for those with Crohn's and colitis. Together, we can share knowledge, experiences, and help show the world the many faces of IBD. Well, hi everyone. Thank you for joining me today for another episode of the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Gish, Crohn's warrior since 2006 and lifelong fitness fanatic. My guest today is Stella Rose Carr, who's been battling IBD since childhood. She's here to share her Crohn's story and how her journey in fighting this disease fuels her desire to live life to the fullest. Thank you so much for joining me today, Stella, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here and to share my story with whoever listens to this podcast. Oh, I'm excited to, to have you share it. I know the stories make such a difference in our community to be able to hear what other people are going through and, and hear those stories. So I appreciate you getting ready to share yours. And speaking of that, why don't you go ahead and start off the show by telling how your IBD journey started? Sure. Well, my journey started long, long ago in 2002. Um, that was when I was diagnosed. So the journey probably started a bit before then. But I was a sickly child um, in elementary school. I was often out sick because I had um, strep throat a lot. And then after a while, it wasn't really strep. They thought I might have had a blood disease because I was very anemic, you know, the, the typical pale and sunken eyes, um, just kind of a frail little girl. Uh, and so after doing the runaround with a bunch of doctors and no real results, um, somebody had suggested that my parents take me to um, a gastroenterologist. You know, I went to an ENT, I went to a hematologist, like all the stuff. And finally, I went to a gastro. Um, and when I was in second grade, um, second or third grade, I had a colonoscopy for the first time, colonoscopy and endoscopy. And wow. what then, was, I'm going to jump in real yeah. quick. What was that like to be so young? Do you remember that just being in mm -hmm. second grade of having to prepare for a colonoscopy? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So I remember, um, it was very like daunting, you know, I didn't really understand what was going to happen. Um, it was at a pediatric hospital. So I remember in preparation for it, my mom took me to Build-A-Bear. And so I made a stuffed animal um, that I was going to take with me into the um, into the doctor's room, you know, when they put me under. Mm -hmm. And so since it was a peds hospital, they, they gave my doll a mask um, as they gave me one. And they put like scented like chapstick or something like inside mm -hmm. the the mask so it didn't smell as bad. Um, just kind of, you know, doing things to kind of calm the situation. So I remember feeling very anxious when I actually was going in um, to be put under. And obviously the prep isn't very um, enjoyable. So when I was really young, trying to drink all the um, the bowel prep wasn't very fun at all. So my mom was trying mm -hmm. to, you know, make it. I sat in bed and like watched cartoons all day and um, we talked about all the foods that I wanted to eat when I came out from the procedure. Um, and so once I went to have the procedure, you know, they, 
you know, count you down and I was under. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty painless from there. But I remember yeah. waking up and my parents were a bit, you know, sad because they, they can diagnose it pretty quickly. Um, and once they are in there, so the doctors told them the diagnosis or, you know, tentative diagnosis. And then I remember having to go back like the next week to the doctor's office. Um, but then after I was home, you know, recovering from the procedure, I had like a wish list of like, I wanted like Taco Bell and like Subway mm-hmm. and like all these terrible foods that I used to eat. Um, and none of them sounded good anymore because once you haven't really eaten much, you know, and your stomach's a bit upset from yeah. that, the last thing you really want is a Taco Bell burrito. Um, but that's what my <laughs> eight-year-old brain wanted when I was going into it. So it's a fun, fun, not so fun memory. <laughs> Yeah, I bet, especially being so young. How many years do you think you were suffering with some symptoms and just kind of being, you said you were a sick child? Mm-hmm. Was it a probably two, three, four years before you actually had the colonoscopy? Yeah, so I don't remember like the years before that too much as far as um, being sick. I, my mom said that when I was little, I was constipated all the time. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's probably early symptoms that were happening. But when a kid's so young, um, you know, you're not really sure what to pin it on. Um, yeah. So I did have issues with bowel movements when I was younger. And then, um, yeah, just like first grade into second grade until we started kind of trying to figure out what was wrong. Um I was just like, you know, they thought it was like strep or colds and stuff. So it wasn't that I was in the hospital or anything to that extreme, um, but just kind of not never really feeling great. Um, and obviously, yeah, I don't I don't remember it too much. I just remember when we started to go to the doctor and I, you know, I would complain about my throat hurting or yeah. stomach aches and stuff. That's probably a good thing that you don't remember most of it because it probably wouldn't be good memories of just yeah. being sick all the time. So so there's a, a silver lining. <laughs> so once they got your diagnosis, what protocols did they start you on as a child to help mm-hmm. treat your disease? And did, did those things start working? So tell me a little bit about your path from then to where you're at now. Did you ever find remission? Did you try different drugs? And mm-hmm. kind of take me from from that point up to where you're at now. Yeah, so it's been a long and winding road. Um, the mm-hmm. first treatments I was on were prednisone and Asacol, and I think 6-MP at some point. And so um, for several years, that was like mm, a few years, I would say, I was on those pills. Um, prednisone obviously was just a few months, but the impacts um, were really um, – negative, I would say, even at a young age, it doesn't do well for your mental health and physical, you know, feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, So to go through that prednisone experience um, in elementary school was pretty, uh, I would say traumatizing, (laughs) Um, you know, coming to school the next after the summer and teachers not recognizing me and friends asking why I was fat last year and things like that, because kids just really don't understand um, you know, mm-hmm. see that you got bigger and that now you're not big anymore or whatever. And so um, 
going through that as an adult is not any more fun, but at least people understand like, oh, it's medication, you have an illness. But when you're that young, people just see the physical effects and don't really um, know the right questions to ask. So that I was- And especially other children, like like you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, So that was never really fun. Um, That first year, I would say, was a, a tough year of diagnosis. And then once I was able to taper off the prednisone but actually when I was on prednisone I started to love food so I'm not sure if that's where your food obsession came from but um, I watched um, I think I was born with my food obsession yeah. <laughs> I, I watched a lot of Food Network to get me through my hunger cravings and started to cook and so that was fun and you know I started some new like hobbies around that age to kind of get my mind away from um that stuff. So I think my mom did a good job about that of like kind of letting me find something to bring more joy into my life in that point. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, once I was tapered off the prednisone and deflated, um, I think I was just on Asacol for a while longer and then it wasn't really working. So in middle school sometime, I started on Humira and so for a couple mm-hmm. years, my mom was giving me Humira injections, and that was back before it was in a pen. Uh, so you had to draw the medicine with the needle and do all that. So uh, many a pokes in the butt back then in those Aww. days. Mm-hmm. And a couple years of that treatment, and it wasn't really showing improvement. And then the next hurdle was um, I wasn't growing. And so I saw some gastro doctors again and I saw some endocrinologists and we were debating um, having me take some human growth hormone at the time Uh, Mm -hmm. and then eventually the doctor went in again for a colonoscopy and saw that the um, ileum in my small intestine was so thickened that um, I hadn't been absorbing nutrients and so the you know the only fix at that point was to get it out and so in eighth grade, I went in for surgery and was down for the count for at least two weeks, maybe a month. It was around winter break um, between the holidays. And so I went in and they took out six inches of my small intestine. And then apparently I had a belly button hernia. So um, they are umbilical hernia. And so they took that out and they took my appendix out you know, made some room for all the other swollen guts. And then um, once I, you know, healed from the surgery, things started to improve a lot. And so I don't remember what medications I was on um, in high school, like after the surgery. Um, Mm -hmm. Did you start growing again? Yeah, it took like a year to kind of heal. But then once I was healed up, I, you know, I grew every year in high school. So I had like a delayed puberty and everything. So people were always like every year I came back to school, I looked different because I just kept growing. And um, Mm -hmm. that was also tough on my like self, you know, body image as well, because although I was still very tiny um, to see yourself grow from like 60 pounds to 120 pounds in like four years, you know, it's really dramatic. Um, And so although it was a healthy weight and growth, it was still, you know, I didn't fit in clothes anymore. And just um, experiencing that was also tough. So yeah, I don't remember what my medical 
um, like my medications were after the surgery. I know it was a pill. Um, oh, I've forgotten the most exciting part of my story. Uh, yeah, do tell. <laughs> when I was before the surgery, so I was still, I think it was before Humira even, or somewhere between Asacol and surgery, um, they tried me on Remicade. Um, and I was one of the lucky ones that had anaphylactic shock from the Remicade. And so about the second or third dose, uh, my mom had gone out to get me lunch while I was hooked up at the hospital. And then, uh, you know, all of a sudden I couldn't breathe. And so luckily there was a nurse nearby and the thing started beeping. And so they ran in and I just remember blacking out and waking up. And I was like, Mom, it's not like I died. Uh, and this was, I was, must have been like in early, like late elementary or middle, early middle school years. Yeah, maybe 10 or 11, it sounds like, if it yeah. was before the Humerian surgery. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that was, um, you know, a taxing experience as well. Uh, I'm sure your mom would have a few more uh, words to describe how that was. Oh, yeah. She was, <laughs> she back she and- was crying. She's like, I just went to get you French fries and you almost died. And, yeah, she was very distraught about that because luckily yeah. she wasn't there. You know, we talked about it being a blessing that she wasn't in the room when it happened because yeah. that would have been really scary for her to actually witness. Um mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so luckily none of my family members witnessed it, but they were, you know, there by my bedside when I woke up. Uh, so no more Remicade for me. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so back to high school, um, I was pretty healthy in high school. I don't remember having any flares. Um, I did the first, like, year and a half after the surgery, I was still getting sick a lot. Um, not Sometimes it was stomach issues, but a lot of times I was just, like, my immune system was shot. So I was um, – I missed a lot of school my freshman year of high school so much that they wanted to hold me back. So even though I had good grades, they, like, legally you have to be in school for X amount of days, and I missed mm-hmm. so many. And so my mom had to fight with the school district, and then eventually I got um, – an IEP, which like individual education plan. So normally um, individuals that have like mental illness or more physical disabilities will have those. Um, but because it was impacting my presence in school, we created a plan that would, you know, allow me to miss more than the legal amount of days. Did she have, did she work with the, the school? I'm just thinking if other people are listening and they've got kids, is that Mm -hmm. something that they can research with the school or is that somewhere that they can learn more about? Yeah. So she was, um, luckily she worked as um, an adapted PE teacher at the time. So she was used to working with the schools and like with IEPs. So she knew kind of how it worked. Um, depending on your school district, like every school has some sort of option like that. So I think working with your doctor to get proper like medical documentation and showing, um, what types of accommodations. So like I needed to not, um, not, I needed to be allowed to miss more than the required days of school. Um, I was allowed to eat in class because, you know, sometimes when it's lunchtime or snack time and if you're not feeling, 
great, then, you know, you don't want to eat at those times, but then you're going to be hungry later. So um, normally, you know, you're not allowed to eat in the middle of class, but my teachers had to accommodate that. So if I wanted to snack when I was hungry and feeling okay, I could do that. Um, And if I needed like extra time on a test or anything because I needed to run to the bathroom or um, Mm -hmm. was having, you know, an episode, then I could um, request that as well. And also, you know, usually you need a bathroom pass to leave. And if someone else has it, then you can't go. So my mm-hmm. teachers were all briefed that, like, I don't need a bathroom pass. Like, if I have to go to the bathroom, I can just excuse myself and go to the bathroom and come back. Um, or if I need to go to the nurse's office for whatever reason, I don't need to, like, let them know why. I can just say, like, I'm going to the nurse so they know where I am. But it doesn't have to be, you know, the teacher can't really push back on it. So that was really helpful. Um, I I transferred schools after the first year where I had, you know, a lot of challenges at that school. Um, And from then on, um, they were really accommodating. That's good. That's good to hear that there's programs out there and that it is, that there is actually some relief in those, in those sentences. Mm -hmm. Now, did you did you stay on Humira through high school? Because I think you mentioned you started that in middle school and then you did pretty well through high school. Were you able to stay on that Humira regimen? So I don't remember. I think after the surgery, I wasn't back on Humira. Um, and then I went to college and I ended up having a flare, I think like a stress-induced flare. It wasn't too severe um, in the mm-hmm. fall of my freshman year. And so I ended up going to the hospital because I had like a blockage or something. Um, And my roommate was really awesome and taking me there. And my friends like made me cards and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. But after another colonoscopy, they decided that I um, had a flare. And so I was set up with a doctor there near my school and he got me back on Humira. And then from from then on, like my freshman year in high school, I was on Humira um, till about like a year after college and then um I was I, so I was pretty healthy most of college didn't really have any issues after that Humira was helping me out and then I was tired of having to do you know every two weeks and if I wanted to travel I had to figure out how to bring enough medicine you know if I was gone for more than two weeks and it was just kind of feeling like it was restricting me and my freedom a bit Mm-hmm. And so um, I asked the doctor if there were any other medicines that were less frequent but similar. And so the doctor got me um, set up with Stellara, um, and it did not work. Um, so I was on Stellara for about a year and just really was feeling not great. And so I think I put myself into a flare again by choosing to switch medicines, even though, you know, the Humira was working. Um So then after a year of struggling with the Stellara, I moved back home and then tried a new doctor, um, had another colonoscopy, still flaring. They put me on um, Humira again, but at a more intense dosage. So I started doing it every week instead of every Mm -hmm. other week. And then um, still hadn't found any relief after like a year of that dosing. Um, and so then now I'm on Antivio. So I've moved now um, 
to like my fourth doctor. Um, I'm now seeing someone at the Mayo Clinic here in Arizona. So it's a bit more Mm -hmm. holistic. You know, there's different doctors and specialists um, available. And so they started me on Antivio earlier this year, like the beginning of um, this year, and that's um, an infusion, and that drug is specifically for Crohn's and colitis, whereas others, you know, were started for arthritis or whatever other rheumatic um, inflammatory disease and then approved for Crohn's. So this one was specifically made for Crohn's and colitis. Um, And unfortunately, I still haven't been finding a lot of relief from it. Um, You know, I know what I felt like when I was doing well on Humira, and I haven't really gotten back to that. Um, So I wish I could be on here telling everyone that I've mastered uh, my flair, but this is a disease like a game of chess, you know? Yeah, it is. And, you know, I think it's good that you're sharing your story and that, you know, you're you're not saying, you know, all is perfect and everything is great because the reality of it is, like you said, it's a chess game and and this disease goes on and on and we try to outsmart it and we can't and it changes and it morphs. And so I think it's important to highlight that, you know, we're not all always going to be in remission, um, at least not yet until, until they can come up with a cure. But, Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's important to share your story and the the trials that you've been through and the, just the journey and the struggle of it. Um, but speaking kind of along those same lines, you know, you're still you're still fighting very hard. You're trying to find what's working, but yet you really do have a you have a great sense of humor. You have a great personality. Just watching you on you know your social media and uh, tell me a little bit about this mental side of it you're struggling with this disease that if you know the listeners of this podcast either have Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or know someone who does so Mm -hmm. they're very familiar with the journey but how have you managed to keep this outlook of just humor and going forward tell me a little bit about that part of your journey yeah so it's really been something that um I've managed since I was younger with it because, uh, you know, it's it's an easy disease to make into a joke, you know, poop jokes are endless. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, even like when I had the, the Remicade reaction and my mom, you know, is sitting by my bedside crying and I was like 11 or 12 and I'm like, it's not like I died, mom. Like, why are you so upset? You know, like just kind of always making things um, on the lighter side, you know, I've always, you know, it's never fun to go to the doctor or get all poked and prodded. And so always trying to make my nurses laugh or the, say something silly to the doctor. And some, some are more receptive to it than others. And others just give you a straight face and are like, why are you trying to make this a joke? But you have to do what, you know, lightens them because otherwise it's a bit too serious. Um, But I think something that really was transitional in that um, or transformative in that um, in my personality was the opportunity to go to the Painted Turtle, um, which is a summer camp, one of Paul Newman's summer camps for individuals that have um, chronic illnesses or life-threatening illnesses. Um, And so I found out about it when I was in the eighth grade. And so unfortunately I could have been going my whole diagnosis but 
Um, I didn't know about it until then. And so at a Crohn's and colitis walk, somebody I met had been there and they told me about it. Uh, so the summer before I went into high school, I went to this camp and, you know, that's a, a teenage years and it's a sensitive time for anyone, but especially when you're you know, living with a disease, it was really awesome to meet people my own age that were also living with this condition or similar conditions and have experienced the same challenges. And many of them had been diagnosed, um, you know, closer to that age, um, but there were a handful who had been diagnosed at young age like me. And so it was just really awesome to share stories and um, to experience that at camp really allows you to be yourself and embrace the the weirdness, the grossness, and um, allow that confidence to build in understanding what life with the disease means. And so mm-hmm. um, having that before I went into high school, I think really allowed me to be more of myself when I went to high school, um, regardless of the disease. Um, and a few more summers of going to that camp, I think really continued to um, want me to allow me to be an advocate and pr- more proud of my disease and willing to talk about it and share with others because, you know, when I was younger, it was something that my close friends knew about um, and some people at school, my teachers, you know, but it wasn't something I went around like shouting to the world. But in high school, still, you know, somewhat embarrassing, but I was learning how to be confident and um, not afraid to share or tell people um, what I had or why I might miss school or why I'm in the bathroom for so long or um, just having those conversations with people who understand it, you know, is good practice for yeah. when you have to tell people who don't understand it. Uh, and so I think that just along with my, you know, my own personality of being lighthearted and silly um, has really allowed me to to keep that mentality and not let the disease kind of get the best of me, even when it has those those challenging impacts on my physical health or mental health. We're going to take a quick break here and we'll be right back with the rest of our interview. Hey everyone, many of you know how much I love the Intestinal Fortitude Supplements. Ever since discovering these products when I interviewed the founder, creator, and Crohn's warrior, Will Jenkins, for this podcast, I've been using their probiotic, gut lining repair, and anti-inflammatory. These products were developed by a Crohn's warrior, specifically for those of us with IBD. And for me, they have become an important part of keeping my symptoms, including mucus and inflammation, at bay. I truly love these products, and now I'm excited to let you know that if you use code CFF10, that's CFF like Crohn's Fitness Food, you can receive 10% off your order. Visit Crohn'sFitnessFood.com forward slash IF. And if you want to hear more about the creator, Will Jenkins, be sure to listen to episode 11 of this podcast. And now back to the show. And does your family, do they kind of keep that same lighthearted attitude kind of with you just to to find the happiness and laugh and joke? Yeah, I, th- I think they're definitely a bunch of goofballs. Um, <laughs> and they, you know, I think they approach it with a bit more sensitivity at times. You know, when they see me not feeling well, I can kind of see it on their face that they feel bad. Or my mom is always like, I don't know how you do it, you know. So yeah. they they chime in on the jokes too, but I think they – 
by way, you know, seeing any loved one suffer isn't fun. So I think for me, it's more of a matter of fact, but for them, they feel it more of like they, you know, they, they wish they could help and they can't. So it's some, maybe sometimes harder for them to, to take the lighthearted approach. Yeah. Cause it is hard to watch someone else suffer with something that, you know, most humans, I think we want for the people we care and love, we want to be able to fix them. And, and when mm-hmm. you can't, it's, it's hard to watch that. Right. And I've, I've had supportive friends as well along the way and um, not making me feel like embarrassed for whatever might happen. And um, my nickname in, in high school for a while was Smella. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> it was endearing. Have those friends. <laughs> yeah. It's good to keep it lighthearted and fun, and it sounds like they definitely helped you do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. You got to make fun of yourself so they can't make fun of you for them. <laughs> <laughs> True. Beat them to the pipeline. <laughs> so tell me, with all the years that you've been battling IBD, You've obviously gone into flare-ups and out. What are some of the things you've learned over the years to help take care of yourself? What do you, Are there certain things that you'll do for self-care or to help yourself relax or to just put yourself in a better place when you are mm-hmm. going through a flare and managing that? Yeah, so I think the, the simple things that help are warm warmth. <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. when I was younger, I used a lot of heat, like electric heating pads. And now I have those, um, you know, those kind of bead filled things that you can put in the microwave. Um, so sometimes if I'm having a, you know, a rough day, um, and I'm in some pain, I'll use that while I'm just sitting at home or to fall asleep and kind of take away some of that tension. Um, I, when I'm good about it, you know, Doing yoga or staying active sometimes does help because it um, can get your body active and not really thinking about the pain you might be having. Uh, whereas if you're just mm-hmm. sitting around, it can be easy to to get caught up in it. Um, but also taking the time, you know, for me, mornings are never um, – I can't really go fast to get ready in the morning. You know, I'm kind mm-hmm. of at will of my body. Um, and so – trying to plan into my schedule, you know, enough time to to wake up before I have to be somewhere um, so that I can have my – not feel rushed in the bathroom and take time doing that um, and creating those space, you know, to do what I need to do more. You know, everyone has a morning routine. Like mine just might be, you know, have to have extra time built in uh, for it than it, someone else would. And so I think that is something that really helps me because – when I was younger, I remember sometimes I'd, I would go late to school a lot because, you know, school starts at a certain time and you can only wake up so early. Um, so if mm-hmm. I had like a restless night, which lately I haven't had so many, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at sleeping through a night without having to wake up and go to the bathroom. But when I was younger, that was um, a challenge. And so working, you know, at that point with my school to know why I'm late. Um, but now, you know, as a professional you know, it's more on mm-hmm. my responsibility of building in that time uh, to allow some wiggle room or if it is, a, you know, a slow morning working with my employer to also, you know, establish it up front instead of kind of hiding yeah. it. You know, it's an easy disease where if you don't say something, people won't know that you have problems and 
if you start showing up late or, you know, you're not at your desk because you're in the bathroom, you know, they might not know why. So when I start somewhere new, I try to, you know, ease into telling them just the gist of, you know, these are some things that might happen. I might have to leave for doctor's appointments or I might be a little late and this is why so that everyone's on the same page and there's no surprises, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, really being that advocate for yourself has helped me. Yeah. Um, but I've never really been great at, you know, eating, like w- having a proper diet that has helped me, something that I've only been working on the last couple of years. But I don't mm-hmm. unfortunately have like a, you know, edible, you know, things that have helped me. Yeah. <laughs> but um it's just okay. being aware of that, you know, and telling, like I have, I eat with friends a lot. And so also communicating with them. I, I think in today's like day and age, it's a lot more common for people um, to have IBS as well. So it's less, a uh, little bit less yeah. stigmatized, I feel, than when I was younger to have issues in this category of your health. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I find that you when you start talking to people even if they don't have a disease you know they've experienced similar symptoms so the more open you are the more understanding they can be and if you're going to someone's house to eat or you're going out to eat um, just kind of being aware and letting people like I have friends that tell me what I'm not supposed to eat while I'm eating it <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> you know, if you have trouble holding They're your extra down, extra helpful yeah, you got to tell people and they'll they'll remind you if they're good friends and you can stick it to them and delete it anyway. But, you know, having people know what works for you and um, if you have, you know, a parent or child or family member, loved one that can give you a belly rub once in a while, that's always nice too. That's awesome. Those are some great tips. And I think it's interesting you mentioned the time in the morning because I'm very much the same way myself. Even even when I'm doing good and in remission, I still like to have that extra time in the morning because it helps me to be less stressed because mm-hmm. I know that there have been you know times that Crohn's has made it that I need time in the morning and it's you know made me later for things. Mm-hmm. And But even when I'm doing good, I just... I have my routine and my body just likes to go slow in the morning and I take that time. And I love how you mentioned, you know, you kind of, you talk to your boss or your you know employer about it and that these are certain things that may come up and this is kind of the reality of what it is and, and that you've got, it sounds like a supportive environment that, that works with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily right now, one of my supervisors um, he doesn't have a diagnosis really, but he's got a lot of digestive issues. And so we just sit around and powwow sometimes. And <laughs> so that's nice to have someone nearby that understands, um, you know, where you're coming from. So if, if there is something to that may come up more severe, I don't have to explain myself too much. Yeah. And it is interesting because you just mentioned a minute ago about how IBS seems to be a lot more common. And then with your supervisor having some GI issues, it it is interesting that, you know, I find when I talk with people about my Crohn's, I do hear frequently people say, oh, yeah, you know, so this person I know has, you know, terrible GI symptoms or this happens or Mm -hmm. so-and-so has IBS or I have IBS. So people... I think gut issues are just a lot more common. Um, And so a lot of people are just 
eager to relate to it, I guess, and understanding. Mm -hmm. And even though it may not be a lifelong chronic condition for them, they're Mm -hmm. at least, you know, empathetic and and understanding, which is nice. Yeah, I I feel that that's sometimes a double-edged sword because it is something that people can relate to, you know, compared to other diseases. Mm -hmm. But it's also, Mm -hmm. there's a different, you know, sometimes I'm like, I just drank water today and my stomach is like upset at me for no reason. And one of my friends, I, you know, reminded me, she's like, yeah, you have a disease. And I'm like, (laughs) that's right. Like water can upset me because it's not about what I'm putting in my body. It's the body itself. And so that's where, you know, you kind of catch the difference between somebody who might have, you know, a bout with some IBS or some sort of thing that they're eating that's bothering them. Um, but they can fix it. Um, so the symptoms they might be really, you know, relatable to mm-hmm. but the ongoing and severity of it is, is just different. Yeah, you're you're spot on a hundred percent. Yeah. Also, massage massage helps. Before I forget, I I enjoy massage because I had a physical therapist once tell me that um, I have a protective posture. And so I'm sure there's other sufferers that, um, you know, are Crohn's warriors that also have this protective posture where if you're, if you're, you know, abdomen is in pain, you tend to scrunch over and kind of hold it and protect yourself and, or you're on the toilet all day. And so that hunched over posture isn't great for your body. And so doing some sort of stretch or chiropractic work or massage to really let go of some of those kinks or tense spots, um, has has offered some relief for me as well as more of the the whole body feel. Yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great tip. It's something that I don't think I would have necessarily thought about it until you're sitting there describing it, and mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, you know, when you're scrunched over and just holding. I mean, I've I've held that posture for so long for so many times that the muscles really do need to be relaxed and just help your whole body. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about doing some yoga or staying active, even when you're kind of managing your symptoms and and trying to help your body feel better and stronger. What are some of the the things that you do to help you kind of help your body? Are there certain, is it just yoga? Are there other activities that you like to do? And do you find that that really helps in the day to day when you're, when you're active consistently? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I am more active, I definitely feel better. Um, It's hard, you know, when you've had several days of not feeling well to get that motivation to get back on it. But um, I really enjoy hiking. Um, Running isn't great for me because the the up and down of it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) jumping around Mm -hmm. isn't so fun. Um, So things that are a bit more calm, any sort of yoga or stretching or meditative, you know, body work, is helpful. Um, I used to be a dancer, so I love dance personally. Um, mm-hmm. So whenever I can dance, that's always good time. Um, and when I was younger, I also used to swim. And so sometimes swimming helped because your body's, you know, kind of being held up. And so um, if you don't have to go to the bathroom when you're in the pool, which can be a pain, um, just mm-hmm. kind of that relaxing nature of water 
um, can also be helpful because your body isn't, you know, if, especially if you might have like joint pain or something, swimming doesn't have that factor of gravity um, that a lot of other, um, you know, physical activities do have. Um, so I haven't swam in a while, but it is it can be um, relaxing to kind of relieve some of that pressure from your body, but still get movement in. Tell me a little bit more. You mentioned meditative body work. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. And then do you also do frequent meditation ses- sessions? Um, does that kind of help with your outlook? And talk a little bit more about that side of it. It's something that I've gotten more into the last couple of years, um, more mindfulness. But somebody, I don't remember where I was, but they were telling me that, you know, you have to breathe, just breathe, you know, because when you have a a disease like this, you really hold a lot of tension in your gut. And so just I find myself um, having to remind myself just like take a deep breath and it really does help relieve some of that internal tension and pain. And if you're not breathing through your belly, you're not really breathing fully. Uh, So it's Mm -hmm. easy when you're in pain to to take shallow breaths and – but really, you're going to feel better if you're you're deep breathing. And so um, throughout the day, you know, if I notice that I'm kind of being tense, I just kind of sit wherever I am and mm-hmm. um, take deep breaths. And um, that, that tends to help. And so um, I'm not an expert at it. You know, I don't do it all the time, mm-hmm. but it definitely helps. Um And also stretching, you know, in the morning or at night before I go to bed to kind of undo whatever my body, you know, tension has created um, so that I'm not just living in a crumpled mess all day, every day. (laughs) Uh Uh When you describe it like that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Does it sound like like you definitely need some stretching? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the mindfulness is, I find really interesting. That's something that I've been getting very much into myself over the past couple of years of just going down this this journey of mindfulness and being aware and our breath and even meditation and just gratitude and how all of those things play into this kind of harmony with our body. It's pretty interesting, but it really does, I mean, just at the most simple, basic you know, element, just taking a deep breath and taking a moment to pause and just breathe, breathe really does make a difference. So I'm, I'm with you 100% on that. So tell me a little bit, let's talk about your journey into becoming an advocate. You talked a little bit about when you were at, at camp when you were younger and how that made you a little bit more open and easier to share IBD with other people. So what really compelled you to become an advocate and to start really putting your story out there and and sharing IBD Mm -hmm. on social media and just in the larger world? Yeah, I think my first experience kind of as a public advocate was in high school when I was the take steps like honored hero for my local walk. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a little speech about, you know, living with Crohn's and yada yada and so that from then on um I tried to take um actually 
Yeah, that was the first more public, but in elementary school, not af- far after my diagnosis, um, I actually did a science project on Crohn's disease and like talked about it um, to my class. And I even showed them pictures from my colonoscopy. And so I think just being transparent um, throughout the, you know, the years. I know I have several friends who really don't have many people that know they have the disease or don't really like to talk about it. And it's unfortunate because I think it's, it's a great learning opportunity for people and a chance to share um, that you have a disease really gives other people the chance to share whatever they might be going through as well whether it's Crohn's and colitis or some other form of uh, medical or mental illness. But um, now that I think about it, you know, I I was very transparent from a young age. And so in high school, I also did a project with a group. We had to create a PSA. And so Mm -hmm. um, another member of my team had a family member who had Crohn's or colitis. And so we did a PSA about um, um, IBD and that got shared with some of the school. And so I think I've always been interested in sharing my story and just being um, an educator for others about the disease and um, how it affects people. And because we can't, you know, it's not a physical thing that you can see, not always at least, um, Mm -hmm. that it's really important to speak up about it. And so as I've you know, gotten older and social media has been an increase um, as, you know, as I've entered adulthood and through college, I've chosen, you know, I think the Crohn's and Colitis Week, like the national week was approved like around the time I went off to college or late in high school. So from then on, it's a great opportunity, you know, not just once a year, but it's to jumpstart during that time of year and really start talking about it. And so I started when I had Facebook, I would share stuff. And then as different platforms um, were created, I would try to share stuff when I was going through something really frustrating. Um, I Mm -hmm. had Facebook groups with friends from camp or other like um, ally groups, I guess you could say. Um, and we share like our things we're going through or have you tried this medicine? And so advocating amongst other, um, people who have Crohn's and colitis has also been helpful with the internet. Um, and really in more, in more recent years, as I've become more interested in, um, sharing my voice through, so like a blog or a podcast or whatever it might be, um, using, like more of a vlog style. So not just like a PSA or a, Mm -hmm. you know, awareness post, but more of like the reality of, you know, in general, people post a positive on Instagram and social media. And so my um, reality of life is the illness, you know, luckily, I don't have many other things that take um, too big of a negative toll on my life. And so when Mm -hmm. I am having those tough times, um, it's really important for my own comfort and, you know, just to, to get that support or awareness out there that, you know, it might look like I'm having a great time traveling and you live in my best life, which I am, but, you know, what you can't see in the pictures is that I was in the bathroom for two hours that day or that my, you know, doctor bills add up every week and that I have to, you know, drive around town for appointments and all that stuff. And so just as much as I post the fun, exciting stuff, Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, why don't I post this other side of my life that's 
not always so fun, but equally as important. And so using that to talk about healthcare challenges and finding a good doctor or, you know, how it's, you know, frustrating to make sure that you have healthcare and uh, that that's another worry and worry doesn't do well for this disease. And so just kind of sharing that with people. um, I've really gotten good like feedback from people. Some of my friends that don't suffer from an illness, you know, just say like they really enjoy watching when I post a little story and sometimes they don't hear anything. So I'm sure people see it and hear it, but sometimes when people share personal stuff like that, they just, they, they're digesting it for themselves, but they don't really know what to say to someone. And it's yeah. not that I'm looking for, you know, pity or sorrow. So if they don't have anything to say, that's fine. Um, but I do also have people who think that it's, you know, it's nice to hear that. And I'd like to start, you know, sharing more, but it definitely helps when I like tomorrow I'm going in for my infusion. And so when I don't feel awkward talking to my phone in front of nurses, I think Mm -hmm. it's nice to kind of show like, this is what I'm doing right now and like share something fun or about what I'm feeling that day physically health wise, or, um, just to show, you know, not, it maybe inspire someone else to share whatever they're going through as well because you know everyone's got something and if you just show the highlights then you know we're doing a disadvantage to ourselves and to others exactly and it's so important to share everything that you've just been talking about because it just like you said even if someone doesn't necessarily comment on it it doesn't mean that it's not you know that they're not digesting it or that it's not helping someone else out there because it does make such a difference to be able to see someone else going through the same thing or going through something that you might be facing soon. And so I think it's absolutely wonderful that you're sharing all of that and doing so much to raise awareness. Tell me what the different channels that you are on. You mentioned the vlog. Um, Is that just on like the Instagram or do you also have a YouTube channel that you're posting this stuff and sharing? So I don't have a YouTube channel. Um, I used to, I have a blog still, but I haven't really been posting on it that well. So I have some archived, you know, pieces on there. It's Mm -hmm. StellaSays.me. And on there I've posted about, you know, what it's like to to be sick but not look sick or what the difference between uh, illness and sickness because, you know, my medications impact my immune system. And so although I might not be having digestive issues on any given day, I'm easily susceptible to colds or sinus infections and a myriad of other health challenges. Um, and so that, you know, being a sick person and also having an illness can bring up its own challenges. And um, so that's something that I've talked about, especially in high school or sorry, in college when you know people are often sharing drinks and there's lots of germs going around and, you know, becoming sort of a germaphobe in those shared spaces and just kind of blogging about those experiences. Um, and on my podcast I have, um, which is Trust Me, I'm Funny. Um, that's on mm-hmm. several different platforms. You can find it. Um, it's not specifically about Crohn's or colitis, but some of my guests I talk about it with. Um, and I'm trying to think of other ways that I can um, weave that into it or maybe interview more people who have stuff, but that's not what that one's intended for. Um, and mm-hmm. then on my own Instagram, stellar.car, uh, I tend to put um, 
those kind of Instagram stories or a post with some, you know, caption, a longer caption about stuff. Um, and I've, I've teetered about creating an Instagram specifically for some of that advocacy and um, more transparency, but I tend to start things and not finish them fully. So the idea has mm-hmm. come, but I haven't taken it up to the next level yet, but those are the main. Well, but then on the, on the flip side, I mean, you're sharing on Instagram, even if it's not only about IBD, your your life isn't necessarily only IBD. So, mm-hmm. so it still works. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's showing that you know I'm I'm someone that has that and still does all this other stuff and uh, yeah. what that looks like. If only I could show the pain that comes after the beautiful food that I post. That would be <laughs> great. Now, they haven't invented that button yet. Yeah, that's something that I think only other uh, cronies and ulcerative colitis uh, fighters can truly understand is that kind of pain. I used to describe it as it feels like I've eaten like a shattered window pane. (laughs) That's a great (laughs) description. (laughs) And I've heard someone else describe it as having everything wrapped in barbed wire. So it's... Mm -hmm. Definitely painful. <laughs> yeah, that I like those descriptions. I usually just like say that it's like someone's stabbing me, or I don't know. Yeah, the stabbing, a gunshot wound. Pick any of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I will list all of the uh, the resources that you just listed: your blog, your podcast, and your Instagram. I'll put all those in the show notes so that people can find those and look for you easily and follow more of your journey because you've definitely got a lot ahead and it'll be it'll be great to watch your journey as you reach remission is what I'll be what I'll be hoping for. Yes, I hope for that as well. So is there anything that I didn't ask that you wanted to share with the audience before we wrap up today? Hmm. Not that I can think of. I think we we covered most of you know, what I've, I've gone through and, um, those challenges that I've faced and how I've, you know, kept a positive outlook through it all. So I think we did a, we did a justice to my story and I hope that whatever I've said has, you know, resonated with people or someone might've gotten a new idea of how to approach the way that they handle their disease and, um, continue their fight to, you know, improve their condition and awareness for all of us. And, you know, we might not get our cure, but we can keep fighting hard. Keep fighting hard and keep lifting each other up. And I know, I I know what you've shared today is definitely going to help someone else out there with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. So I really appreciate you uh, sharing so much of your story and just coming on the podcast and joining me today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much as well. I've dedicated most of my life to fitness and health, but as I've grown older and felt the effects of fatigue as I've battled Crohn's, I no longer want to spend hours in the gym every day, which is how I first stumbled across the Cellar Size Rebounder. It's become the backbone of my fitness routine these days, giving me the ability to tailor my workouts from gentle movement to intense jumping that literally activates every cell in the body. And the best part is, it only takes 10 minutes a day for an incredible workout. Find out for yourself what a difference cellar size can make in your health by visiting Crohn'sFitnessFood.com forward slash cellar size. 
Thank you for listening to the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have an IBD story, either as a patient or a family member that you'd like to share as a guest on this podcast, or if you have a topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email at Crohn'sFitnessFood at gmail.com. If you'd like to learn more about me and my Crohn's journey, follow me on Instagram using at Crohn's Fitness Food, or visit my blog for in-depth articles about my struggles and victories with Crohn's through diet, fitness, and lifestyle at www.cronesfitnessfood.com. And finally, remember, be strong, be grateful, and be the warrior that you are.